Her mom said, There is no such thing as closure. Closure is for people who haven't gone through something like this. And that stuck with me because I think she's right. I, I think that people who have not been through a deeply traumatic, life-altering event can talk about closure. But when you go through something like this, and, and like you and I were just talking about before we hit record, um, you, you have to deal with it every day and on anniversaries and Father's Day and Mother's Day and birthdays and holidays yeah. where they're not there. There is no closure. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? So funny story. Um, my parents, George and Susan Ziegler, listened to the podcast, and they called me today because today is Father's Day. As you know, I just did the Father's Day episode, and um, they said, my dad called me and goes, What's going on? What's going on? Like, but very more monotone angel sounding. And uh, <laughs> it was really funny. And I was very, very confused. And I realized he was taking a piss at me about the podcast and my little intro that I do. And he's like, you should put that on a T-shirt. So maybe that's a good idea. Maybe I'll do, I'll do that. Thanks, George Ziegler. For your recommendation, you have two shout outs in, a, in with many weeks on the podcast. Unbelievable. Um, for those of you joining, uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, for those of you who found me on TikTok, well, let me tell you what, I'm having a lot of fun on TikTok and my Instagram lives, which are every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. And um, we're gonna be doing TikTok lives. I'm gonna maybe try to do one this upcoming week. So anyways, as you know, I try to answer at least one listener question every single week when I start the show. And this one comes from Vivian1187. She saw me on TikTok, the amazing TikTok, and reached out to me on Instagram because you can DM me there. And um, she had this question. She says, Collier, after binging your podcast these last several weeks, I just want to know how you handle your mental health. I too am also a trauma survivor and struggle with my mental health. Do you have any tips for PTSD sufferers like myself? Well, Vivian, I... I'm not a mental health professional and I can only tell you my own personal experiences, but honestly, if you are struggling with your mental health, like I know many people who reach out to me because of the program and they sort of find a kindred spirit with myself, with the program, you guys, um, you guys always ask like, hey, your material's really resonating with me. What should I do? Well, the first thing is to find a good analyst, find a good psychologist who you can work with, a therapist. 
There are loads of them, and now there are wonderful apps out there that where you can just directly connect with people, which is what I use. Full disclosure, I use an app. I found a guy a couple of years ago during the pandemic, and I said, look, uh, hey, man, you know, I'm going through some struggles. At the time, I had just decided to quit drinking alcohol, and I was like, hey, I found somebody who had specialized in addiction, and not that I was an addict, but I wanted somebody that sort of understood, like, hey, I have all these issues pending, and I also have this um, this thing that I'm trying to eliminate from my life as well, eradicate, it's not good for me, it's causing me a lot of anxiety, and I will get into that in another episode. I have a great guest that's gonna come on, her name is Jillian Teets, she is from Sober Power. We are gonna do a, a we are gonna do an episode together very soon um, and discuss all the effects of alcohol and drinking and all those things, but get back to what I was saying. So I reached out to somebody that really connected and resonated with me. I looked at his work and I was like, hey man, you seem really cool. And I wanted him to, again, understand that I had been through this amazing, this not amazing, I had been through this extraordinary amount of trauma in my life and I had taken a long break from therapy. I did not go to therapy for probably, I actually, here's the, here's the real truth. I didn't go f- to therapy from age probably 16 till I was probably like, in my mid, early to mid thirties. Um, it all really started when I did a murder in Mansfield and I reconnected with Dr. Dennis Marikis. And then I realized through our sessions in the film, how important connecting with a therapist was gonna be again. So I started going back, I worked with him a little bit, then I worked with this other guy who I started uh, with a couple of years ago. He's fantastic again, I found him through an app the app is really cool. Hey, if the app wants to sponsor me, I'll mention its name. Um, but the app w- was amazing because it was so convenient for me. And and I think that now, you know, it was the global pandemic. I was going through a lot, um, as we all were. And I, I felt the need to reconnect and, and or to connect with a therapist. And I found him and he's great. Um, so for me, that's what I think you need to do firsthand. You got to reach out to to a specialist that you can talk to, somebody you can talk to. The second thing is, is PTSD for me is really tricky because uh, I had Dr. Angel Iskovich on this program a few weeks back. He did a book called The Art of Routine. I would say the number one thing that I talk about when I talk about with uh, trauma survivors like Kara Robinson-Chamberlain, who's going to be on this program very soon. She was on our True Crime Survivors panel ahead of CrimeCon uh, a couple months back. And Tara Newell, who you guys know, has been on the program several times. She was the one who ended Dirty John Meehan's life and the series Dirty John is based on what happened to her and her family. Um, you know, she is a trauma survivor as well uh, and a friend of the program. She, it, we all discuss, uh, Kara herself, uh, myself, some other friends, Lenora, Claire, we all talk about like what routine really does because routine really helps you. I feel like if you're a trauma survivor and you're going through extreme PTSD, you just want some normalcy. And I feel like when you're able to really connect in that routine and and come to expect it, and it f- makes you feel like you have control of your life in a lot of ways, because so much, you know, and look, everyone's trauma is different. You know, there's, you know, I have non-combat PTSD, right? There are, there are men and women in our armed services that have massive PTSD related to combat related trauma. And, um, you know, I feel like everybody who goes through this type of trauma 
all really connects with having a routine and that routine, just whatever that routine is for you, whether it's a ritual of getting up every day and meditating, going to do yoga, whether it's going and running five miles for me, it's either running, swimming or biking. Like I get up and I either swim like a mile in the mornings or I go for a run for I don't know, three and a half to five miles, just depending on how my knee feels. Um, there's a lot of things I do. And, but I know, I notice myself when I get very busy and the world starts to kind of close in around me that, uh, I, if I'm feeling a little off when I do these things, especially related to like exercise, like it releases endorphins and serotonin and it makes you feel really good. That for me is a key thing, but a lot of people, they have different aspects of their routine. You know, maybe that routine is eating healthy or maybe it's like eating like crap. Maybe they have that one, you know, that one Coca-Cola a day. I believe actually Angel Iskovich talks about that. Like they have that one little reward in their day that they look forward to that kind of leads them through the day, whatever that is. Um, you know, as long as it's a healthy behavior and you feel good about the behavior that you're doing, I say, go for it. There is so much in this world that is bad for us, that is triggering for us, that contributes to a downward spiral when you're going through really heavy shit. And, um, I say anything that can relieve that stress, as long as it's not detrimental to you or ones around you. I think I say, go for it. You know, whatever makes you feel happy. I mean, I'm, I'm good with that. Um, but Hey, you know, don't take my word for it. Take the word of a certified professional, which you can find through X named app. <laughs> Anyways, I digress on this point. Um, so this week's episode is really, really cool. Um, for a lot of reasons lately, I have become, uh, dealing in this true crime world, I have become more and more aware of a couple of different things. One would be conscious true crime, right? And there's a lot of people that take care, take advantage of people's stories and just put it out in a podcast, make a bunch of money or, or not, but they use it for their own personal gain. So they don't get victims permission. They become more exploitative of the victim stories. And they're, they're not saying, Hey, I'm going to talk about you on this program. Are you okay with that? However, my guest today is Nina Instead, the host of the Already Gone podcast. And she did exactly that. She hit me up on Twitter and she said, hey, um, I saw your, I listened to your podcast. Um, I became aware of it, but I was already planning on doing a story about your mother and about the, your family's tragedy and about you and leading the investigation in the missing persons case turned murder case and your role in that. But I wanted to, to get your permission and let you know that I was gonna do this. And I said, that is fantastic. Why don't, I, why don't you interview me? And we did, and that episode actually came out about a week ago on Already Gone because she's way faster at her post-production than I am, that's for sure. But uh, no, so Nina instead did this wonderful uh, show. We, we went back and forth and I said, hey, I wanna interview you on my show because I really wanna highlight the fact that you are a conscious true crime creator. You reached out to me, she's doing work now. She is, she lives in Georgia now, but she is from the Michigan State area. Um, she does a lot with uh, foundations in Michigan that are involved in missing persons cases. Most of these cases obviously are women that are coming from uh, a, a battered background, uh, domestic violence, things of that nature. And she works closely with authorities. She also um, works closely with families and helping them go through, with, with work through the steps to find their loved ones. And that's really cool work. I, I feel it's really important to highlight this type of work because it's so important in a world that is so exploitative. 
as I'm discovering, to have people that are real good guys that are really helping and are doing it for the right reasons. So on that note, I am pleased to welcome to the program, Nina Instead. So my guest today is Nina Instead. Nina is the host of the Already Gone podcast. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, Nina, uh, we, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's interesting because I want to just acknowledge, you know, often people will do, I, I guess I am very passionate about, as, as you've discovered, um, true crime and survivors and, you know, their stories. Um, and you were one of those people that really, that reached out to me and said, Hey, I want to do a story about your family. Is that okay? And I want to commend you for that because that's not a lot of true crime posts. They just kind of assume that because something is public domain, that they can just talk about it without even reaching out and saying, Hey, I'm even the courtesy of, Hey, I'm going to talk about this. I want to, I want to make sure that's okay. You know what I mean? And so I want to commend you for that. And you, we have a mutual friend, Sarah Turney voices for justice. And, um, and she obviously has glowing things to say about you as well. So, um, I'm very honored to talk to you and, and to sort of highlight what you're doing. Um, so thank you for joining me. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, you and I were discussing and you sent me a sample episode, but let's get into what is sort of, yeah, I'm very interested in why people have come into true crime. And I guess what I would like to know is why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came into this journey? So my journey into true crime started when I was very small. When I was about three years old, my parents separated and I went to live with my grandparents, my mother's parents. And I lived with them for about two years. And during that time in Berkeley, Michigan, there was a serial killer who was murdering children between 1976 and 1977. And the serial killer who is as yet unidentified is known as the Oakland County Child Killer. And they took a child from my neighborhood. So when I started kindergarten, there was a memorial in the school for Christine Mihalik, who had been murdered and held for 21 days before her body was found. And then, you know, as I'm this little kid who's who's going through the difficulty of having separated parents and living with my grandparents, there's literally a killer running around in our neighborhood. Um, and, and that has always stuck with me and that case is unsolved. And that's always stuck with me that four children ended up being murdered by this person or persons and as they've never been identified. So when I decided to start the podcast back in 2016, I wanted to cover stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes area, stories that I was familiar with from neighborhoods that I was familiar with. And Michigan and the Great Lakes, that's that's my my hood, you know, yes, Ohio. That's your <laughs> Yep. <clears throat> we are Midwesterners. Why? Exactly. <laughs> Why do you <laughs> You know, why do you suppose that these types of things occur in those areas? Like, it just seems to be such a hotbed. I mean, from, you know, sex trafficking, fentanyl, you know, opioid crisis. It's just like, what is what is in the water? That's often uh, what great, I wonder. The, our salt, our salt-free, shark-free Great Lakes. Yes. Um, part of it is that, you know, Detroit's a border town. People don't think of Canada as being anything other than our neighbor, but the port of Detroit is one of the largest ports by volume in the world. So much stuff is moving over those borders in Sarnia and Detroit, and some of that stuff is drugs, some of it's people. Um, 
in a city like Detroit, community like Detroit, Metro Detroit, there's going to be a lot of crime. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I, I mentioned fentanyl, but I remember reading a, an article in Details Magazine, I want to say it was in 1997 or 1998, when they were talking about in Detroit, like a span of 10 days to two weeks, 45 homeless people died of drug overdoses. They were heroin users, but it's odd because they started finding this chemical in there that would make your heart stop immediately. And that was fentanyl. I mean, we're talking 90s. What is it? 97, 98. I'm just trying to think. 20 some years ago. Over 20, like almost 25 years ago. Now, this was a problem in Detroit because of exactly that. Detroit being a port city, so close to Canada, import laws, yada, yada, all these things happen. And um, yeah, that, that has always sat in my, in the back of my mind as these things sort of come to light. So the serial killer still has not been caught. Is that correct? Correct. It is suspected that the two men they believe could have been, although no official announcement has ever been made. These two guys they think could have been responsible are both deceased. One of them died in 1978 of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The other died in prison on unrelated charges in 1995 of a heart attack. But again, we have all these families, um, that never got answers and growing up with something like that going on, it really impacts not just how you are brought up, but how you bring up your own children. Sure. Um, one of the things I guess I'm curious about, so, you know, we connected because of obviously of your, of your podcast already gone and you're just genuine advocacy and interest in missing persons cases and aiding families. How did you, how would you, what is the, what is it that compelled you to get into that work, that work? So I sort of stumbled upon it. I was interested in the missing in Michigan organization because I thought, oh, I can cover missing persons cases on the podcast. I found that, that very interesting. The, um, One of the first cases I covered was the disappearance of Carol Kresge Darment, who was one of the Kresge heirs. And she disappeared, I want to say it was in 1983 from the city of Troy, and and her remains were never recovered. Um, Her husband, who was the main suspect in that case, died three years later of stomach cancer. He had a private plane and he owned several businesses that had foundries. So it's not known if she ended up in Lake Huron or if her remains were destroyed at one of the foundries of his businesses. But, you know, in exploring her case, I realized how many people are missing. There's something like 3,800 people missing in the state of Michigan right now, and about 800 of them are under the age of 18. Um, I volunteered and I started getting involved in running the social media side of the organization. And now I manage a group that has about 90,000 members. And we all we do is support police in getting social media outreach on missing persons cases. And I spend a lot of time working with families who have missing loved ones. Um, well, first of all, I commend you for that. That's amazing. Um, you know, we were discussing in, in the interview that you and I did for your podcast about the necessity for being this voice for these people and sort of how I've been lately, as I talk about this more and more on the podcast, realizing that had I not been the voice for my mother, that's 
stood up for her, things might have gone a lot differently. Yes, absolutely. And what are, so when you're working with these victims who are looking for their victims and who are trying to be that, what are, what is sort of your, your first step with them? What is it, you know, that you come to with experience wise of, of saying, because I think it, you know, one of the things that you and I discussed was people often look at law enforcement and go, law enforcement isn't doing enough. Law enforcement hasn't done this. Not understanding that law enforcement is so inundated with these cases that if they're not pressed about it or, or it isn't reported right away, it's a month later that they go cold. I mean, would you concur with that? So uh, I think sometimes people are under the misconception that, you know, a detective is sitting at his desk waiting for work to be assigned when in actuality they have several cases that they're working on concurrently and your missing loved one's case may be one of those cases, you know, just one in a pile of things that they have to work on. So I encourage families to be their own best advocate when it's a missing teenager uh, like a high school student, I'll say, all right, have you have you called the high school? Have you spoken to their counselor? Have you spoken to the school resource officer? Have you spoken to the principal? Because the school may not know that they're missing, or they may just think, oh, they're missing, but it's not a big deal. But if you talk to them, maybe they can talk to some of your child's peers. Maybe they can talk to the school resource officer. Maybe they know of an incident that happened at school that led to them going missing. Um, putting out posters and flyers. I just covered a case on the podcast, uh, Rosemary Cato, a case from 1990. She went missing and it was literally a guy standing out in front of a drugstore handing out flyers that led to the big break in the case that led to her being recovered. So it's visibility is important, but you can't expect somebody else to go out and do that for you. You need to do it yourself as frustrating as that can be. Yeah, and then there's something else that's frustrating, and there's a, a guy that I'm going to speak to on the on the podcast that is former LAPD, and there's another flip side to this, which is, as with any great opportunity, <laughs> come along the opportunists. Yes. And they see someone who is really looking for, struggling to find that loved one as an opportunity to make money. Yeah. And... This gentleman is trying is working very hard as a former LAPD officer working in missing persons for over a decade is exposing these private investigators that will often are predatory yeah. on families and these cases that these come desperate in families. And say, desperate families. Can you talk a little bit about that? So in my experience, I have not seen a lot of the PIs coming in, and it could just be that it's not a Detroit thing. It's more of a West Coast thing. What I have seen, and I have cautioned families about this, they want their loved one found. So they'll put, if you see, you know, if you see Susie, call this number and it's their personal cell number. And then at two in the morning, they get a call from someone saying, I know where Susie is, but you need to send me $500 and then I'll tell you. And they're desperate and they think this person is, knows where Susie is or has Susie. So they send the money and it's actually an extortion attempt. This person doesn't know Susie and doesn't have any information on their loved one. And it happens all the time. I mean, I personally see it happen several times a year. 
and that that's just me dealing wow. with the you know the the little subset of cases that I handle for missing persons. So I I, I warn people to guard their privacy. And, and make sure you know who you're dealing with. And I think that, that making sure you know who you're dealing with speaks to these predatory private investigators or helpers that want to come in and um, they're going to, they're a bounty hunter and they're going to find your missing loved one. And, and they're just really out for a check. And probably out in a lot of ways as being a clout chaser as well. Yes. With the prevalence of social media and being, oh, I'm the guy that discovered this, that, and the other. <clears throat> I think, you know, even in when I look in true crime, you know, I've become aware and, be, and you know, I came into true crime. I, you know, I made a film uh, to tell the story of my mother. I made it with a two-time Oscar winner. You know, I wasn't involved in this world, but, you know, starting the podcast and recently going to CrimeCon, I'm becoming aware of also the predatory natures of these podcast hosts and 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 tell and show hosts and things that that use this as an opportunity not only to enhance their careers but also enhance their uh their sexual prowess or or you know they become sexual predators of some of these victims and take advantage of these people which is to me just absolutely reprehensible i mean that's beyond oh, the pale in my opinion absolutely and and there's a and there's a lot of these people that use this and because you know, it's 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 very tragic, and and anyone that exploits victims or survivors in this way, personal, financial, pers you know, sexual profit is just they need to be excoriated, and especially those that protect them too, that allow them to continue this behavior, because it, at the end of the day, it all ends up being a financial yeah. thing. And these are vulnerable you know? people. Again, these people want money, and and how they can live with themselves is just well, that's a whole other thing. Um, you had me listen to this episode, Tracy wow. Islam. So when you, when you hear about these cases, what is the first thing that you, that you think? <laughs> well, one of the things that I've tried to do, and I admit I have not always been successful is, am I sharing a story just to share a story? You know, is it just, is it storytelling or is it, am I telling a story that is meaningful and in, the case of Tracy Islam, her murder investigation was hampered by an overzealous and in the end, unethical searcher, dog handler. There's other cases that I've covered, like the murder of Jane Snow back in 1979. And I covered Jane Snow's case, which is an unsolved murder from Northern Michigan, because not only was she murdered, but if you go on a road trip today, and if you stop at a rest area and you notice that there's cameras and there's an emergency phone, that's because Jane Snow was murdered at a rest area that had no cameras and no working phone. Literally, wow. legislation was passed to get these rest areas in Michigan in particular beefed up so that if someone stopped there, they were safe. They weren't isolated. And I, I want to tell stories that have an impact not just on the immediate people involved, but on the community. And you may not realize these things you know, like about Jane Snow. And if you look, I mentioned Carol Kresge earlier. She came from an extremely wealthy family. She, she was a Kresge yes. heiress. Her family had millions and it didn't save her from the domestic violence that took her life. You know, it, it, people yeah. don't necessarily realize these things. They don't. And, and one of the key, you sound like me in a lot of ways, because 
when I was wanting to tell my story, I said, you know, I'm very concerned about at that time, people would look at these cases and go, okay, well, the bad guy goes to prison. The victim is dead. The state gets its restitution. The gavel hits and we say next. And then we don't examine the consequences of violence on ancillary victims, the impact that it has on non-combat PTSD and people, the impact that it has on the communities where these happen right. and what, and ultimately that's what led to a murder in Mansfield was my sort of quest to die on that hill of saying that we need to look at the ramifications of these, of these actions. Now this has become very fashionable for a lot of companies and people like oh now we're oh yeah we're super woke or whatever it is you want to call it yeah right buzzword <clears throat> and, and it's good and it's good it is good that they do this but it, that was not always the case which was no. always my largest frustration is like this this level of awareness of like not it just doesn't die there it's like no, people it, have it, people have to a pick up all effect. the pieces Yes, there There's is a, a ripple, ripple effect, effect, exactly, and it impacts the entire community, and it impacts, you know, not it, it impacts the family, and then it spreads out from there to the neighborhood, to the community, to the overall area at large, and people remember, you know, like I said about the Oakland County yes. child killer, I'm almost fifty years old, and I still remember that case. I still remember how frightened people were, and when my kids got to be a certain age, can I walk around the block by myself, mom? Uh, and I really had to think about it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't just end. The story doesn't end. It's not like a book where you just close it and it's over. It continues. It persists. Again, raising awareness on these things is where it really starts. You know, I think that when you talk about the, the ripple effect, and I think that some people go, well, well, you know, they, they don't understand the impact, but then they see like the OJ Simpson case. They see these school shootings. They see, see things like this that are, um, that have such a massive impact on the communities, but then they go, well, it's a small town murder. It's like, but it's even bigger there. You know, my case, you know, there was 30,000 people in the county. It was like must see TV yeah. every single day because the, the trial was televised and it's, it's, it, the the real significant impact is is staggering um <clears throat> what would you what do you say to people who are or what would you say as someone who has turned their passion and their personal childhood experience into a form of advocacy for this and then using your popcorn your podcast as a platform for that what would you say to someone who you know a lot of the times these these people are scared to report or they're scared to, to, you know, what's going to happen. I mean, we talk about the police, right? Yeah. And people often vilify the police and say, well, they're not doing enough. And it's like, they don't understand again, the amount of <laughs> cases that are there. But what do you say to these people that are, that are desperately trying to find a loved one? You know, it's hard because there's, there's a family that I work with that their sister went missing in 1979. She was 12 and she's still missing. And I'm still in contact with her sisters who are still actively searching for her. You know, and they'll, they, you know, we probably correspond every other month and they'll say, well, what do you think about doing this? And you have to advocate. You have to be the advocate for your loved one because nobody else is gonna do it. And it's not that police aren't interested. It's not that your neighbors aren't interested. It's that 
unfortunately, you own it. It belongs to you. And if you're not going to advocate for it, if you're not going to put in the legwork or put in the time, it's hard to ask somebody else to. And, and obviously, I'm not talking about someone who's just gone missing or, or you know, a, a brand new case. But on these longer term cases, once police have sure. exhausted all of their leads, there's not a lot more they can do. And, and I have families and it. Oh, it absolutely pains me. But we're basically waiting to find a body and nothing's going to happen until we find the, the remains of their loved one. And I don't know what to say. I, I literally don't know what to say to them because they've been patient. You know, they've been patient for decades in some cases, and there's just, I, I don't know how you live with that. I don't know how you find space to live with something like that, but people do. Uh, you know, one of the things I point to when I'm talking about missing persons case, and you talked about the Ethicrestes, okay. and you talk about financial wealth, like one of the things I, you know, Robert Durst passed away earlier this year from COVID of all things, of yeah, course, good riddance. but you know, his what right his he's finally jinxed as i said in my podcast <laughs> you know his wife kathleen mccormick went missing in 1984 i believe 1982 1984 and you know the durst family has a lot of money and a lot of power in new york city real estate right but that wasn't the reason why the case it wasn't like the family was trying to push the case under the rug like the like his brothers and sisters were terrified of him and yeah. he you know or his brother at least and you know it wasn't really because of that it was just because again you know she went missing and there was no follow-up with it and, uh, primarily because there was no follow-up with him right but, you know they were just getting ready to try that case because he essentially admitted to killing her on the witness stand in the other trial yeah and you know, it's, um, it's, and, and, and that's such a high profile case. I mean, there was a mini series done about Robert Durst yeah. on HBO. Yep. And even then you don't ultimately have the payoff that I think that a lot of these families hope, which is the justice that they get. I mean, for me, you know, I did a Ted talk called what if the answer you seek is not the answer you need. And essentially it's just that. It's like even confronting my father in prison, hoping to get some sort of answer as to why he murdered my mother. You know, at the end of the day, I'm dealing with a sociopath. Now, at the end of the day for me, I ended up getting what I needed because I feel that like he, just because he would have said, oh, I, I did it. That wasn't gonna lead to some sort of big revel revelation no. with me. That where I would have brought more questions. So what do you say to people that are really seeking that closure? So there was a couple that went missing out of San Angelo, Texas. A girl named Sally McNelly and her boyfriend uh, disappeared over Fourth of July weekend. And they were recovered months later, but no, no one's ever been charged in their murder. And her mother said in a YouTube video, there's no such thing as closure. Closure is for people who haven't been through something like this. And that really stuck with me that, you know, someone like me who's never had a deeply traumatic life altering event can say, well, you know, I'd really like to bring closure to the family. I, I don't think there is any such thing as closure in a case like this. I don't think so either, which is why I call my podcast moving past murder. Yeah. It's finding those unique ways to move past these things. Um, 
Nina Instead, thank you so much for joining the program. Where can we find you? What are you doing? Where do we, where do we check so, you out at? I host the Already Gone podcast, which releases on the 1st and 15th of each month. If you are a cocktail drinker, you should check out my Instagram, which is at Nina Instead, because I make a lot of craft cocktails. And if you are interested in missing persons in the state of Michigan, I run the Missing in Michigan Facebook group, and I'm the social media coordinator for the Missing in Michigan organization. That's fantastic. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing. As far as the cocktails, I, you know, I quit drinking a couple of years ago. So um, you know, I'll look for the non-alcoholic. Uh, Fair enough. The non-alcoholic mixers. I'm into, I'm into that. Um, thank you so much for your time. And again, thank you for reaching out to me because you wanted to tell my story and, and you're, you're doing, you're one of those people I feel that's doing true crime right in the world and, Thank and, you. and advocating I for try. survivors, victims and respecting their stories. And you should be commended for that. And I appreciate Thank it. You. I appreciate you. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you today. Well, that was a really interesting conversation with Nina. Um, you know, it's, it's encouraging to see someone like that out in the world doing her best to help people and help families. It's also discouraging to hear these stories of these people that are just looking for answers and looking for closure and trying to find these loved ones. I mean, ever since I've created, you know, a murder in Mansfield, ever since I started doing this podcast, I have become really aware of how unique my particular situation was with my mother and having somebody who is an advocate speaking out on behalf of someone who is a missing person, you know, again, it was treated as a missing persons case by the Mansfield Police Department. It wasn't until Lieutenant David Messmore listened to the word of an 11 year old child saying, my mother is not missing. My mother is dead. She would never leave me. This is what I heard. And ultimately everything ensuing and the case, you know, them, them basically taking the word of an 11 year old child. And I am so grateful because I didn't really understand at the time or even into adulthood of how unique that is. And just to be able to, to do that for my mother, it, it brought me so much peace, right? Unfortunately, there are others that are not so fortunate and so lucky to be able to find their loved ones and to get the answers that they need for the closure that they so desire. And it's really wonderful to know that people like Nina are out there trying to help families Sherpa through these tragedies you know, take care of themselves during these tragedies. Like she says, you know, are you drinking enough water? Did you eat today? Um, these things are really, really important because when you become so obsessed with something I was as a child, you know, it becomes your the, like the whole light in your world in your universe, because you're just trying to find out what happened and get those answers and call attention. But you know, it, it, it really is amazing to hear the work and we're going to be, you know, I'm going to be interviewing other people on the program that work with missing persons cases that also deal with private investigators and they also deal with corruption in these private investigators and people that are, you know, running scams and trying to take people's money based upon the disappearance of their loved ones. I mean, it's, it's a lot, it's really, really heavy stuff, but I just am really grateful to Nina for the work that she's doing. I really want to highlight that her podcast is called already gone. We are going to have links in the bio and the show notes of this program to the organizations that she works with in the Michigan and tri-state Ohio, Indiana, Michigan area, and also any other affiliates that she has. Those will be in the show notes for you guys to check out on this episode. So again, 
thank you very much for tuning in. And I want to hear from you guys. Was this episode beneficial? What do you think? What would you do if one of your loved ones went missing? What would be your action steps? What would it be? Would you, who would you call first? You know, hopefully it would be the police, but what would your, what would your plan be? I mean, we never want to think about these things, but we also want to be cognizant that and we want to be ready. I mean, let's not live in paranoia, but you know, let's acknowledge that these things do happen. I feel, but look, Hey, that's just my opinion on the subject. I want to hear your opinion because you are my audience and I'm making this content for you guys. And I want to deliver with the best possible content that you guys want to hear. So please, I love hearing from you. Reach out DMS, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, on, on TikTok, YouTube. I read them all as much as I can email through my website, which is callyourlandry.com. Look, I love hearing from you guys. It really makes my day. It really makes me feel like the content that I am delivering to you guys is really resonating with you. So on that note, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment. Please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today.